0: Oh, we've been speaking about freeness of being this week, and more importantly, just investigating in the currents and expressions of our own lives, uh, that possibility, the direction of a freer way of meeting and understanding and responding to life. And I thought I'd try to reflect on some different aspects or expressions of freeness in a kind of, you know, can mean a lot of different things. So I'd like to speak about what we could divide in different ways. We could call it social freedoms, uh, worldly freedoms and spiritual freedoms. We'll see how well that classification fits as we go on. Another way I was thinking about it, and somebody brought this up in one of the groups, is freedom freedom of, freedom fra- to, and freedom from, which are different, right, in some ways, and different along that classification, I think. So freedom of, uh, or social freedoms... We've, you know, culturally, here in the UK, here in Europe, we've we've developed quite a lot of social freedoms, ones that we maybe take, uh, take for granted or not. The more we may have been involved in social activism, or the more we may have studied history, the less we might take those for granted. But we enjoy a considerable amount of social freedoms. Freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, um, freedom of marriage. It's an interesting example because it's recent. Interesting how uh, not just within one country, but actually in a significant amount of the world, we can move from one situation... Right, where it's not freedom of marriage, where homosexual marriage is uh, illegal almost everywhere, to a uh, kind of this domino effect very, very quickly of it becoming legal in, by no means everywhere in the world, but uh, you know, in most of the so called liberal democracies. And that's one of the things that, that characterizes a so called liberal democracy, is quite a lot of social freedom. And a cursory glance at, at history would, would suggest, and maybe different how we look or which histories we read and the slant that they're, they're given in, but a cursory look at history would suggest m- maybe we enjoy more social freedoms. And I say we, it kind of depends who's the we we're speaking about, right? You know, various things like skin colour determined significantly how much sense of social freedoms one enjoys. To be a a, a young black man in the US doesn't feel like anything like the kind of social freedom that a white person might enjoy when you look at the statistics around police killings, for example. But as much as we can generalise we, liberal democratic Western we's, uh, live in a country in a in a way where those social freedoms have been seen as important and developed right? and of course, even that needs to be qualified they 've often been only seen and as important and developed when a significant enough current of protest arises to move things forward. And generally you have a kind of inertia towards preserving the status quo, and some lean ahead called progressives right? wanting to advance the social freedoms and others tend to pull back wanting to preserve the status quo and then there's you know, sometimes one lot seem to be in the ascendancy other times other lots seem to be but by some lurching forward we develop various social freedoms and of course there's no guarantee that that's a one way process and there might be some argument to suggest that there's a little bit of a regressive movement at the moment freedom of information, freedom of privacy, for example, all this data-gathering stuff that you're no doubt aware of recently, all the Cambridge Analytica stuff affecting the US election and the referendum here. The Trump administration's idea this week, which they just published while we've been on retreat, to start as a condition for getting a visa to visit the US, that you would have to submit your social media identities, so that your posts on social media can be checked to decide whether you should get a visa or not. So you know that's, a, that's it's only a proposal thus far, but you know that's a serious backstep from what we consider to be some of the social freedoms you know, towards privacy, and freedom of movement, etc., which we maybe at least to some extent take for granted. Freedom of movement as well, of course, needs a lot of qualifying. I don't know what kind of passport you hold, but probably most of us have British or European passports. You enjoy quite a lot of freedom of movement. At the same time, the refugee crisis has shown that not all people, by any means, enjoy that kind of freedom of movement. And let's see, if Brexit goes ahead, you might be stranded on this rainy little island. (laughs) <laughs> I say you. <laughs> I've got a British. I don't need it, but I've got a British passport as well. I might be. What is it called? Repatriate. Re you know, sent back. <coughs> Let's see. So, you know, I think social freedoms are important, right? They, they, they. they it's. Uh, those possibilities for us, mm. uh, whatever degree, and of course, a long way to go, and you may be involved in some of those, the struggles for one, uh, collective freedoms or freedoms of minorities or different groups, etc. But those freedoms allow us to be here, for example, allow important ways in which uh, you know, people are, can. Express themselves, uh, can follow through on the wishes of the heart, can assemble freely, express freely, love freely, etc. Very important. And they've been there's, They're more of a focus in uh, European slash Western uh, culture, it seems to me, than in the in the East, for example. But if one looks to Buddhism. I am getting round to Dharma stuff slowly (laughs) if we we look to Buddhism we look to Buddhist countries we're often not great models of social freedoms in Thailand some even mild criticism of the king jail used for criticising the royal family uh, anyway I won't go too much into that Stuff, but I think I want to recognize the kind of the, the importance and significance of that, the, the, of what we could call freedom of or social freedoms. And then there's quite a difference. If what we could call freedom to or worldly freedom is arguably the predominant focus, again, culturally, that we've grown up in. We could also call it individual freedom. Right? And there's a very big difference between a worldly view of individual freedom and a spiritual view of individual freedom. And, uh, to some extent, we, it's a little bit of a clumsy categorization, but we could also, to some extent, give that a kind of West-East categorization. Western uh, se- more focus in Western history on freedom too and more focus in Eastern culture history, freedom from, uh, freedom from, yeah. But we can at least focus on it as a sense of what we could call worldly freedom, the freedom to, spiritual freedom, the freedom from. Freedom to is basically the, the pursuit of freedom through me doing what I want, having what I want, getting what I want, Getting rid of what I don't want, and uh, the kind of basically the pursuit of wealth, happiness, success and ease. Right? And you know our culture operates on that. We might like to trumpet the social freedoms, but operationally, day by day, most of what the energy is going to the commercial energy, the political energy, the personal energy, is, is me, whoever the me is trying to attain a freedom to have more, get more, do more, etc. Often shot through with the belief that if I can have, get, do, become, make enough, then I'll feel really free. Maybe. The evidence isn't that great for that. But it's a very, it's a very seductive vision of freedom. I was just, as preparation for my talk, I was just listening to the Rolling Stones. <laughs> they have this great song from 1962, Free to Do What I Want. You know, I'm free to do what I want in the old time. <laughs> it's, it's exhilarating. There's a cover version of that song in, a, in a, the, what's the film? Jerry Maguire, you remember that? It's a long time ago. Tom Cruise is driving home in a sports car. It's kind of quite testosterone Right. I mean, the song itself, then the image in the movie, it's a young, white, successful, rich guy in a car, and he's depressed because something's gone wrong. It's a long time since I saw the film. He's going through the radio stations, and nothing quite fits, and then he finds this. I'm free to do what I want. He's hammering on the steering wheel. Wow. <laughs> so, it's, but it's seductive, right? It's exhilarating. Getting what I want is exhilarating. Having what I like is exhilarating. And the view that I could just have, get, consume, become anything I want—you can be anything. You can be anything you want, son. It's usually son. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the American dream—it's—it's <sighs> it's totally that. That's the kind of the, you know the t- testosterone-fueled. Kind of um, grotesque, far reach of the hope of freedom, of fulfilment through freedom too, and can I think there's there's, there's a, there can be a richness, and value in our realising oh that we do enjoy a certain freedom to be able to pursue and support and engage in what seems useful. But without without some really helpful guidance to that, the tendency is to kind of default to just following the, what I want, following our whims, fantasies, d- desires, compulsions, fears, etc., So that's the worldly vision of that. And the spiritual vision, certainly the the vision of freeness at the heart of the Buddha's teachings, is almost the complete opposite of that. It views the freedom, too, actually as a kind of enslavement. Enslaved by our compulsions and contractions and confusions. We've been speaking about that kind of Pavlovian reactivity. We say, I'm free to do what I want. But is that... How free is that? Or is it actually when a certain button gets pressed, right? Like, you know those experiments with subliminal advertising? In the 70s, they would flash one frame of a a Coca-Cola tin in the middle of a movie. One frame is too quick for the naked eye to see, but it registers. Sales of Coke go way up in the interval. Right? So uh, is that me being free to do what I want? I want a Coke, I can have a Coke. (laughs) Or is that just me being helplessly enslaved by my programming? That's what the Pavlovian response is, right? So what we could call spiritual freedom, freedom from, is a vision of and a path of freedom from being bound by my habits often my unconscious habits and we, we infer a lot of agency we say well I want this and I want that and I like this and I'm going there and I'm going to become this and we, we, and we put the freedom too in the heart of it as if I'm making free choices around all of that but of course those choices are greatly um, influenced by all kinds of conditioning factors At what point did you decide what you wanted to do with your life? And I know some of you are thinking, hold on, I haven't got that yet. (laughs) (laughs) But we decide, you know, we say we decide, oh, I'm going to study X or Y. I want to be a so-and-so when I grow up, etc. We we, we have this this sense of what I want to do, what I uh, want to have, what I want to be, and those we call the expressions of our freedoms. But when we really look at our, ex- our experience, we don't seem to exert a great deal of influence. I mean, you might come here and say, I want to be happy and peaceful all week. Well, you're <laughs> free. You're free to do what you want. Do you want to be happy and peaceful? Be happy and peaceful. Okay. So <laughs> well, you sit down with the wish, no doubt. Good wish. Very good wish. May I be happy and peaceful. But hey... No guarantees. You can want to be happy and peaceful. And you might say, well, maybe meditation is an interesting way to turn towards being happy and peaceful. But you get what you get, right? Including, no doubt, moments of happy, moments of peaceful. But inevitably mixed in with all kinds of other moments. Moments of doubt, moments of confusion, moments of discomfort, etc., etc., so while these are all important social freedoms, individual freedoms, worldly freedoms as well as spiritual freedoms our emphasis is on the the freedom from in other words the emphasis is on finding out how free we actually are in our freedom to in other words bringing a lot of care and attention to these compulsions, and contractions, winds that we find moving in us—the the path, I guess we can—the or the direction, the orientation of Dharma practice, at least in the way the Buddha laid it out. There are different models for laying it out, but what's called the what's called the threefold training, basically. Which covers these different aspects of um, of an orientation to freeness. In Pali language, for those of you familiar, of course, sila samadhi panya. Sila translates roughly as as conduct. It's often translated as virtue or morality, which I don't particularly like as translations. I'll, I'll explain, but conduct. Samadhi, like I translated it yesterday, as um, inner training, or mind training, transformational training. And then Panya means wisdom, basically. So, the way most people are familiar, the way most Buddhists are familiar around the world with, with Sila, is as what's known as the five precepts. Maybe some of you are familiar. Maybe the coordinators mentioned at the beginning of the retreat, did they? No good, I think i they usually do, but I ask them not to <laughs> and the reason one it's interesting right, because it seems such a fundamental part of Buddhism, the five uh, precepts, actually, they only appear twice in forty five years of Buddha's teaching, interestingly enough, and Buddha wasn't banging on about. Uh, lay people observing five rules the Buddha was really quite against rules <coughs> the Buddha started teaching started the community zero rules zero rules but a lot of encouragement to be kind to be respectful to be sensitive right? to pay attention to one's conduct right? and the the summer part of uh, what's often called uh, 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 right livelihood or uh, uh, following precepts talked about refining one's conduct it's quite different actually but then of course you get problems along the way and so every time there's a problem then we okay we'll have a rule so oh people would come to the Buddha oh this monk has been doing this unhelpful inappropriate thing okay rule number one from now on no monk will do x or x or y then couple of days later you can imagine the poor Buddha imagine trying to look after this whole group of people endless problems arising we think of the Buddha just sitting under a tree under a tree no way an administrator as much as a yogi then by the time he died they'd made 227 rules for the monastic community and five was plenty for lay people and they were given you know a a little bit of mention but the, 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 the important part of the mentioning is really, and they, they get framed in a, a negative languaging, right? a bit like the Ten Commandments, but they're a bit softer. You call them training guidelines, presets, which is a little softer <coughs> than commandments, but basically similar. No killing, no stealing, no sexual misconduct, no lying, and no, uh, no intoxicating the mind. But I don't think it's... and No, let me back up. For some people, that can be very helpful. It's like the clearer and stronger and more solid the guideline, oh, the easier it is for me to adhere to it. And if you start giving me woolly guidelines, like be kind and be nice, it's hard for me to distinguish where to land on that side. So no killing, no lying, no stealing. Oh, okay, that, I, that's unambiguous. And so for some, and you may count yourself among them, that's, that's very helpful, that kind of unambiguous uh, rule. But if we go back to the, the original encouragement, and I find this more useful, that sense of refining one's conduct. All of those, what are they all about, those five precepts? They're all about behaving with one another. They're about our conduct in such a way as to be respectful to life. Respectful to each other. Respectful to consciousness. Respectful to boundaries. That's what all of those represent. No killing. Respectful to life. No stealing. Respectful to each other. No sexual misconduct. Respectful to boundaries. No lying. Respectful to truthfulness. And not intoxicating oneself. Respectful to consciousness. And for me, that has a much more alive quality to it rather than a particular rules. We're used to rules being the arbiter mm. of morality. And the rules we're most used to as being the arbiter are called the laws. Right? And we grow up feeling like laws are the, mor- the arbiters of morality. Laws tell us what are right, what's right and what's wrong. And of course we also grow up with the um, consequences. We see the consequences. You break the law, i.e. you do what's wrong... Serious consequences, but rules often aren't. Uh, you know, rules te- tend to be rigid, and anyway, often aren't very good arbiters of morality. Slavery used to be legal. Um, treating women as property, uh, chattel, and what's the phrase? Something at chattel, but you know, goods and chattel. Goods and goods and chattel. Yeah, exactly. Well, it used to be legal. And similarly, things that used to be legal and now aren't. So we would say, at the time, they seem like the moral arbiter of things. But it's actually important that we don't. That's how those social freedoms evolve for us not settling for rigid rules as the arbiter of what's right and wrong. And interesting how that can change. And slavery was the law. That's, that was okay in some way. And now it's so very clearly not okay. And even in small ways, like, do you remember before the smoking ban... It seemed normal. You go into a, pu- a pub and it's completely full of smoke <laughs> and you can barely breathe and your eyes sting. Well, that's the way it is. It's normal, right? It's perfectly legal to smoke in a pub, so that's the way it is. And there's a bit of, you know, moral outrage from people when there's a proposal to change the law because I have to smoke in the pub. What do you mean? You know. And then within a very short time afterwards, it's like, God, can you... We used to just go into these rooms that were completely filled with smoke and that was normal it starts to seem ludicrous so the the line changes and it's interesting just to see how easily we give away the arbitration of morality the arbitration of what's right or wrong the arbitration of what's okay to these kind of external authorities in this case the big external authority of the nation-state the government, the law. but you know, Laws aren't always moral. And because some of us need, you know, it's helpful, I'm not saying we shouldn't have any laws. Right? It's helpful that there are laws. It's particularly helpful for, for those who don't have much of a moral compass oneself. For not actually very developed in their kind of moral intelligence. You need to clear rule and I think the precepts are a little bit like that actually they're helpful for a clear rule if you need a clear rule there's five good ones you can't go wrong with those but at the same time we're actually asked to investigate our conduct and to see what actually what conduces towards respect towards kindness towards support and that's part of a path of freeness how do I refine my conduct? In other words, how do I show up in the world? It's part of how we get to, 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 uh, to orientate in the direction of respect, kindness, goodness, freeness, respect. I think I said respect a few times. <laughs> it's also how we get to see our own um, you know, greediness or neediness or mean-spiritedness. Not in a judgmental way, but in a way to see. Oh, is that what do I want to support? And Like we've said a few times this week, whatever we support, that's what grows. So, sila mm-hmm. part of the threefold training. Maybe one hears of it as morality or something, but I my, my encouragement would be to see that as you know, how do I conduct myself? How am I in my relationships? What can I do to bring kindness, respect, clarity, investigation to those things? So there's actually to be an exemplar for the values we care about in the world. And And for the opportunity to bring those forth. You can't rely on the law to be moral. the The garbage patch in the Pacific Ocean... I think it was just three years ago it was the size of Texas this right now it's twice the size of France twice the size of France and just last week there was legislation prepared went to parliament to ban single use plastics in the, in the UK with a big lead in time and because of lobbying power from plastic companies Theresa May refused to put it to the vote it's immoral it's completely immoral the lives of you know sea creatures and land animals and ourselves 90% of all bottled water has microplastics in it now but it's inconvenient to ban single use plastics it's immoral not just immoral it's psychopathic pathological do we want do we want that to be the arbiter of goodness rightness morality so when we start to really uh, consider our conduct, we might have to consider how much, how much is the law worth attending to. And the law is in alignment with our best sense of respect for life and for others and for boundaries and for truthfulness and for consciousness. Wonderful. That's what we might call that an enlightened law. An awake law. A law in the support of freeness. But where it's not, we might find ourselves sometimes, and the more we care about this stuff, the more we might find ourselves in that position, where it's immoral to accept the law, follow the law, go with the law. Second area, samadhi, mind training. That's the bit that's mostly around meditation, and I want us to see threefold training, one of which is predominantly about meditation, because of course this is a meditation retreat, so we're doing a lot of meditation. This isn't a social activism retreat, we're not out there you know, protesting Theresa May this week, maybe inwardly, but... <laughs> but sometimes when we we in an environment like this we can get the impression because this is a meditation retreat that this is what dharma practice is all about it's just all about sitting on a cushion meditating hence why i've given you know quite some time to looking at the these these previous parts before we look at the mind training but then of course there's something about the, the willingness and the engagement to really, really look at one's own stuff rather than just looking out there and uh, generating a lot of moral outrage about the government or about these people or about uh, the oceans, etc. That's important, but it's like, okay, well, what's the pollution that might be going on in here? What's the, uh, the, um, the self-delusion that might be going on in here? What's the greedy, needy, disrespectful attention to myself or others that might be going on in here? And so, of course, an environment like this in, allows for a, a really, an intensive, immersive opportunity for meditation. And as you've no doubt had the opportunity to taste, that can be you know, really powerful, powerful beyond our imagining. There's plenty of times this week. As somebody said, you know, "I've touched a depth of whatever—depth of love, or a depth of peace, a depth of expansiveness—that I had no idea about. Deeply transformative. But again, it would be ashamed to reduce our vision of some of mind training just to what happens in retreat." It very much seems that there's a, there's a combination somehow of the, the, you know, the potency of the kind of deep dive one can do in an environment like this. And equally important, there's the momentum of some kind of, the regularity, the daily regularity of just stopping with oneself to sort of get a read on what, what, how am I? What's going on th- today? Where's the attention pointing? What am I invested in? What's it like if I soften that? How about if I just give some real support to the capacity to come back, to soften, to drop? Not with expecting some fabulous results, not with measuring our practice, not with um, doubting ourselves because it's not as deep as it was on retreat. But just the, the kind of the regularity of that, maintaining a certain momentum. We're orientating towards this possibility of transformation, liberation, deepening understanding, and then you know we can we can have different visions of of that. I often don't speak very much about my my own background in dharma practice because it has some sort of clichéd exotic elements to it I went to India when I was a teenager still and I spent some years uh, living in monasteries and hermitages and in the mountains and it was important, powerful uh, extraordinary time and my very much set the course for the whole of the rest of my life but either through that kind of um, story or through the sort of the, just the kind of the spiritual imagery we get, you know, whether even superhero movies now. Like, uh, did you see Doctor Strange or, or one of the Batman movies? They go off to the east and there's some kind of mystical temple and, you know, it all goes on there. And so much of... The you know there's so much, so many lotus flowers and mountain tops, <laughs> in in that kind of spiritual imagery that it can easily reinforce the idea that oh that oh in that far away land that's where <laughs> something happens. Mm. I, I had a student who. Very much had that that kind of um, delusion really, and would and was very very sincere in her practice, and very on fire really with her love of, of dharma practice, but she kept having this this sort of unfortunate comparison to the, my kind of spiritual biography story. Oh yes, but you, oh yes, but you, you know you lived with your teacher in that way. Oh yes, but not important not important anyway fast forward 10 years and out of that commitment she's now writing a book about uh, her adventures in meditation and I was just last week speaking to her and I said can you imagine what it's like for somebody reading that book they're, they're going to read it and think oh what an extraordinary spiritual life she's had <laughs> oh she's this, this, oh this happened to her and, oh she meditated in this place for this long etc 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 It's easy for us to idealise somebody else's practice. Oh, well, they they had this situation, or they went to that place, or they they met this person, or they were sat with that teacher. It doesn't matter. What matters is the sincerity with which we engage. You engage sincerely. If you care about this stuff, if you see the liberating, transformative possibility of Dharma practice, and you give yourself to that as... My teacher once said to me, teachings and practices, practices and teachings, liberation is unstoppable. Hmm, Context is less important. Hmm, So not to get hung up on what you think would be the, the, the special circumstances for practice. Or, if you really care and you continue to feel hung up on those special circumstances, give everything up and go off. And find those special circumstances, and by all means, sit on a mountain top for years. And then, third aspect, threefold training, panya. Panya means it translates most easily as wisdom clarity, vision would also be good translations. Wisdom. Actually, the best translation, I think, would be those three terms together for Panya. Wisdom, clarity, vision. Uh, The way we understand the nature of life. The way we understand the nature of experience. We've been pointing in different ways, again and again, to this sort of the familiar reference point, the default reference points self and world. And plenty of uh, moments or experiences where we get that we get the taste or the sense, where we get the clarity and the vision that that's not the whole truth. And often we have a, a language and an orientation in this kind of practice to letting go, letting go of the sense of self, letting go of the sense of ownership, letting go of the sense of control. And there's the, the vision that often goes along with that is the kind of disappearance of the sense of self, and that can be frightening in, in some moments, but it can also be very compelling because the sense of self can you know can be narrow, it can be complicated, it can turn in on itself. You know We sit here during this week getting in a knot where the self 's telling the self all kinds of selfy stuff about the self. <laughs> So I can feel very, oh, just dissolving that, disappearing that, dropping that, letting go of that. But equally important as well as what we might call letting go, might also be letting in. Letting all this in. There may be moments where the the dropping and the letting go of the sense of self, the disappearance of the sense of the self is really appropriate, beautiful. But sometimes we can find ourselves in conflict unnecessarily, unhelpfully with our experience in trying to let go of it. Somebody was speaking to me earlier today about seeing just beautiful flowers and then feeling the sense of ownership, the sense of self arising in relationship to these flowers, the liking, the kind of taking ownership of. And then we say, oh, I've got to let go. What about if you don't let go sometimes? What about if you really just let in? Maybe it's just as liberating, just as freeing, to to fully expand the sense of self, as it is to try to drop or forget about the sense of self. Expand to include the flowers. Okay, my my flowers, my hole. my people. <laughs> Maybe the my isn't quite right. It sounds rather inflated, but actually, what if we ex- expand? I mean, we're, our sight tells us. My sight tells me, "Oh, you're all out there, and I'm over here." But that's not true. I just, I just expand what's happening here. Where are you all really? You're here. You're here in my awareness. And well, where's the edge of my awareness? As you sit here now, where's the edge of awareness? Right? We say the sense of self ends at the skin boundary. But awareness doesn't end at the skin boundary. And sight is just the proof of it. And hearing is the proof of it. And empathy is the proof of it. And compassion is the proof of it. The fact that we're constantly impacted by what we call the world, as if it's over there somewhere. We're constantly impacted By taste and touch and feel and emotion. What if we were to really let all of that in? The sense of self, that which I take myself to be, didn't have to stop anywhere. How might I engage with the world, with you, whoever the you is, with what I call them? Whoever the day is. If I'm really not defending a sense of self, where might our vision and clarity and responsiveness to life come from? And if we were to really let all of this in. Because it's already here. Look. Listen. Sense. We respect the social boundaries, but there are no existential boundaries. The Threefold Training is a recipe for freeness, a guideline, a map for showing up freely in the world, for exploring our experience so to free up our understanding our vision our conduct our responsiveness our life may all beings everywhere live freely